0: The 1998 Yankees were a -a one-of-a-kind team, and 25 years later, we still haven't seen another team like them, not just within the Yankees franchise, but in all of Major League Baseball. As you know from an episode of the show from last summer, I am a Yankees fan, albeit a relatively new one, especially compared to our guest today, and reading this book about the 1998 squad was a delight for me. I know it will be for you too, Yankees fan or not. Derek Jeter, who was on the 1998 team, said, I would put it up there against any team in history, and I would like our chances. The team went an impressive, record-breaking 125 to 50, won the franchise's 24th World Series in a sweep at that, and the book's author, Jack Curry, writes of this team, we will never see anything like the 1998 Yankees again. A quarter of a century later, no one has matched what that team did. And until a team does that, the Yankees will stand on top of baseball's mountaintop. The 1998 Yankees can say they were the best team of all time. And we are diving into this team right here on the show today. The book is The 1998 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever is out as of May 2nd. It is written by Jack Curry, who is an analyst on the Yankees pre and post game shows on the Yes Network, where he has worked since 2010. He was part of Yes's Emmy Award winning Yankee coverage in 2011. He's also a columnist for YesNetwork.com. And until 2009, he was a national baseball correspondent for the New York Times. Before taking over that position, he was the beat writer covering the Yankees for the Times. And he worked at the Times for 22 years. Take a listen to our conversation. Jack, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here today. We were talking a little bit offline about our mutual Yankees fandom. Yours is far longer than mine, but I'm a big fan of yours and I'm so glad you're here.
1: I appreciate that, Rachel. I've covered the Yankees for more than 30 years and there's a passion in covering this team and reporting on this team. So always very cool to speak with someone who has the passion that you have.
0: I do. I really love this team. I'm a, I'm a baby Yankees fan, but I do have the passion. So I always love to know someone's Yankees origin story. So how did you become interested in the team? And as you just said, you've been covering them for a very long time. So how did that all begin?
1: So my answer to this question, Rachel, tilts more towards my job than it does toward the team. I wanted to be a sports journalist since I was 13 years old. So I've been pursuing that career since I was a teenager. And wherever that career was going to take me, that's where I was going to go. Fortunately for me, a kid who grew up in northern New Jersey, I never had to leave this area. I ended up getting a job at the New York Times one year out of college. I did enough there that they were impressed enough, I guess, that they put me on the Yankee beat. Then I became a national baseball writer. And after 20 years at the Times, I wanted to try other challenges. And that That next challenge was TV, and and I'm very thankful that I have the opportunity to be on the pregame and the postgame and analyze Yankee games.
0: And I, I watch you at least four or five times a week, so I feel like I know you. I know you don't know me, but I feel like I know you, and I definitely know your face. And unbelievably, it has been 25 years since 1998 and a quarter century since the 1998 Yankees and the wonder that was that team. Derek Jeter said when he spoke of the 1998 Yankees that it was the greatest team ever. That's what comes to mind. And then he went on to say, I would put it up there against any team in history and I would like our chances. So what made this, if it's even possible to dial it down, what made this team so great? Arguably one of the greatest teams in baseball history. What was the magic formula here?
1: Rachel, a ferocious lineup a lineup that just was relentless and didn't give pitchers an inch. They went up there to swing at strikes, and if you didn't throw them strikes, they were willing to take a walk. They would foul pitches off. They would just make the other team work. Then you talk about their own pitchers. You had a rotation that won 79 games that pretty much featured four aces in Wells and Pettit and Cohn and El Duque, and even Arabu contributed that season. You had Mariano Rivera at the back end of a strong bullpen. But I also think beyond all the things that I just said, Rachel, I think this team was on a mission after losing in 1997. I think they allowed an opportunity to slip away. And in 1998, they said they were just not going to let that happen again.
0: Well, let's talk about that, actually. So the success of the 1998 team was, as you said, very motivated by the disappointment of the 1997 team. So kind of give us a little bit of context. What happened in 1997 that fired them up so much?
1: So they win the World Series in 96. And I think they thought they were on a magic carpet ride, Rachel. And they are in position to beat Cleveland in the playoffs. And Mariano Rivera gives up a home run to Sandy Alomar Jr. They end up losing a game four when they were on the verge of clinching. And then they lose game five in heartbreaking fashion by a run. And I've been in a lot of losing clubhouses, Rachel. But I I walked around that clubhouse afterwards. And there was just such misery. They were so morose. I later found out that Joe Torrey held a nonverbal meeting where he just sat in the middle of the clubhouse and and shared that ending with his guys. I liken it to a eulogy at a funeral. I think that it was a nonverbal eulogy. Mm. And I've spoken to several players, both then and now, who said that loss motivated them to come back in 1998 and be in better position. Just because you're motivated doesn't mean you're going to win. But they were focused and driven to make sure 97 didn't repeat in 98.
0: Well, let's go back to Jeter for a moment, who was, of course, on this team. He went on to say that he doesn't think anyone will do what this team did, which was go 125-50, which any baseball fan knows is incredible. He said, if the team, I don't think it will be done again. And you write in the book that not only did the Yankees win, they didn't just beat them, they pummeled them. And you and I were just having the most interesting conversation offline about, you know, what was more exciting? The 1998 Yankees were Judges' home run record last season. And, you know, you you mentioned this earlier that these weren't just wins. These were, this was domination. So since then, in the last 25 years, has any team, Yankees or otherwise, come close to the level of play that this team exhibited?
1: I don't think anyone has. I look at the 2018 Red Sox. They won 108 regular season games. You've had the Dodgers, who have had high regular season win totals, but you have to complete the deal. And, and that's why I think Rachel there, that team stands above because look at the Dodgers across the last decade, the Dodgers have been the best team in major league baseball mm-hmm. and they have one world series title on their mm-hmm. resume. It just shows you how, how hard it is to win. And when I talk about this team being the best team of all time, a part of the reason is because you have to go through three rounds of playoffs and you could get knocked out very easily. We've seen that. I mentioned yeah. the Dodgers from last year. They won 111 games and, and then they get knocked out in the playoffs. And it just shows you how difficult it is to be dominant and to be great. And that's who I believe those Yankees were.
0: Yeah. Well, Chuck Knobloch said of this team that it was egoless, which, of course, in any professional sport is very unusual. He said, I'd never been on a team like that in my career. It was a great feeling to know that everybody was there to win it. And that was it win at any cost. So, Talk to us if you can about the teams win every day and dominate every day mentality. Where did that come from? Where was that inspired from?
1: I think when you look at the veterans on this team and their work ethics, Rachel, I think in our everyday life, we're all affected by the people we work with. And if you're working with someone who is really grinding and really trying to make it better for everyone, I think that impacts you. And Tino Martinez told me a story about never seeing anyone sitting on a lounge chair or lying in a couch, reading a newspaper. Obviously these days they would be on their phone, but mm-hmm. that resonated with me that Paul Neal was in the batting cage working. So T- so Tino was going to go join him and Jeter was taking extra ground balls and somebody was in the weight room and Coney and, and El Duque were talking about different grips on their pitches. So I think they fed off of each other and made each other better.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about the pitching rotation for a moment. So the pitching rotation on this team was stacked. We've got Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, Orlando El Duque Hernandez. But I want to focus for a moment, if we can, on David Wells. So during this season, he pitched only the 15th perfect game in baseball history. And you write that he did not get along with manager Joe Torrey. And I'm interested to learn more about that and how Torrey got along with other players. Was this a one-off or Did he have issues with other players? What's the story there?
1: I think it essentially was a one-off. The way I described it in the book is that a manager sometimes is the parent and the players are the kids. And sometimes you have a rebellious kid. And I think Wells was the rebellious kid. Tori didn't have a lot of rules, but the rules that he did have, he thought that David pushed the issue on some of those rules, whether it was showing up late for a meeting not participating fully in batting practice. It was kind of comical that Wells's locker was right near Joe Torrey's office, and Wells liked to crank heavy metal music on the days that he started. (laughs) So there was just this division and this dissension between the two of them, which is why, Rachel, I think that David Cohn is an unsung hero on that team, not only because he won 20 games and what he did on the field, that he was savvy enough to swoop in, see that there was a division between Tory and Wells and just become the mediator and just say, Hey, I'll take care of Wells. He told Joe Tory, I will handle this. I will keep him out of jail. Don't worry about it. And Rachel, <laughs> it worked from the time that Wells pitched the perfect game until the end of the season, David and David, the two of them were two of the best pitchers in the American league. They finished in the top five in the Cy Young award voting.
0: Well, I want to go back to Derek Jeter, who I know you have a great relationship with, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but, Derek Jeter was on this team. Daryl Strawberry was on this team. A whole host of other standouts. See, my Yankees history is, is not nearly as deep as yours. So I did not realize that Jeter and Strawberry were on a team together. And that's its own story, its own podcast. We could do another episode about just that. But there were a lot of standouts. There were a lot of wins, obviously. But I want to know what the big, what the biggest challenge of this team was.
1: I don't think this team... Well, first of all, they had to get through the first week. They started out 1-4. and four. Joe Torre had a, a meeting telling them he thought the play was stale and sluggish. The players spoke in that meeting, including Cone. They came out that night, pounded Seattle, won 22 of their next 24, 164 of their next 80. The real stressful moment for this team comes in Game 4 of the ALCS against Cleveland. It's the one time in the Yankee season where... You thought their season could tilt away from them. Mm-hmm. And El Duque ends up winning that game. So they even the series with Cleveland. They win the next two. They sweep San Diego. So El Duque is also a hero in this book. And in fact, I, I wrote an essay in the New York Times, the Thursday edition of the New York Times, about how I felt El Duque was the most fascinating player on that team.
0: Yeah, I just want to know, you know, you were covering the team at the time. How is it, you know, now we're looking back in a retrospective 25 years on, what was it like game to game? Did you know the magic that you were experiencing as you were experiencing it?
1: I've been asked this question a lot, Rachel, and I think the demarcation point for me is 61 and 20. You're mm-hmm. at the midway point of 162 game season and you've won 61 games. So at yeah, that that's point, that's crazy. Right, do the math. They were on they were on pace to win 122. They ended up winning 114. I knew they were very good before that, but I do remember that 61 and 20 just jolting me because I thought, man, this team has been so dominant. And when I looked around the rest of baseball, I didn't necessarily see a lot of teams that I thought could conquer them. That's how good they were. And oh, along the way, they were. I think they were 39 and 13, or 40 and 13 when suddenly El Duque becomes part of the mix. So it was a matter of the rich getting richer, and mm-hmm. it was a joy to cover this team. So many professionals, and a team, Rachel, that drew a lot of respect from opponents. I mean, they beat you, and they pummeled you, but they didn't do it with uh, embarrassing you. They they did it almost in a dignified way that the opponents respected them.
0: A dignified beatdown every time yes. once. I just still can't get over the egoist comment because what team do you know, especially these days, it's egoist, you know, that's just impossible for me to imagine. But the team went to onto perhaps not shockingly listeners at this point in the conversation win the world series, it was the Yankees 24th world series win. they swept the Padres to do so. And you write fittingly, the Yankees celebrated a spectacular season, a season that was as remarkable as any in their illustrious history. Professor Torrey's team had finished the math assignment and the baseball assignment. There were no more wins to chase. Okay, so then what happens in 1999? How can you follow that up? And have we ever seen a Yankees team as good?
1: Well, they won in 99 and 2000. So let's not belittle those accomplishments. Right. It's so hard to win. In fact, since the Yankees won in 98, 99 and 2000, it's almost a quarter of a century. No team has ever even been able to go back to back I think that they carried some of those same traits into 99 and into 2000. And the stress that I talked about in 98, there are some people in the Yankee world who will tell you that 2000 was just as stressful because it's against the Mets. And Mm -hmm. if you played for George Steinbrenner's team, you'd better not lose to the Mets. I think those teams were really good teams too, Rachel. But to me, the 98 team stands on a mountaintop.
0: I was going to say, are we going to see a 1999 Yankees book next year? Are we going to see a 2000 Yankees book the year after that? We've got, I mean, just what a time to be alive and what a time to be a Yankees fan, right? And you were there for everything.
1: I can't answer that question right now. You're, it's sort of like- <laughs> That was a rhetorical
0: question, but- I've run a
1: couple of marathons and and writing a book to me is the equivalent of running a marathon. You do mm-hmm. all this work and all this preparation. And then when the book comes out, that's kind of when the, the marathon is over. And I've never, I've only done two, but I've never been ready to run another one right away. But yes, sure. there there will be something else in my future. But I, I, I'm very proud and happy with the way this one turned out.
0: It's so good, Jack. It's so good. And to the point of, you know, how do you follow that up? You write in the book. We will never see anything like the 1998 Yankees again. A quarter of a century later, no one has matched what that team did. And until a team does that, the Yankees will stand on top of baseball's mountaintop. The 1998 Yankees can say they were the best team of all time, greatest team ever. Greatest team ever, greatest team ever, Jeter once said to me, meaning you, not me. And then he laughed, but I know he believed it. So do I. So I should also note that two years later in 2000, you went on to write a book with Jeter, which I need to add to my list. So I would love to know some of your favorite personal memories from that season. I mean, obviously you're covering it, but and and maybe even some things that didn't make the book. What are some memories that stand out as just you can't forget them?
1: I've been asked this a few times and I start at the end, Rachel. I remember being in that clubhouse in San Diego when they won. And at that point, I'd been covering baseball, what, for about eight or nine years. And I'd been in winning clubhouses before. And that clubhouse and clubhouse was a mixture of celebration, but also of utter relief. When you win 114 games, you'd better win the World Series. Because if you don't, you'll be remembered as the 114-win team that fizzled so I, I made sure to take a mental note of guys who I felt were overjoyed, but also just exhaling as if to say, wow, we did it. We 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 didn't let this opportunity pass by. And now we can call ourselves one of the best teams of all time.
0: Well, to that point, has any team, not just Yankees within that franchise, but any team in Major League Baseball that you can think of even scratch the surface of this team? Or are they just truly in a class unto their own?
1: No, there were other teams that you could clearly say were the best team of all time. This was my examination and and my thesis, which I backed up with evidence, including interviewing John Thorne, Major League Baseball's historian, and he picked the 98 Yankees. But my gosh, you could talk about the 27 Yankees and the 39 Yankees and the 1976 Cincinnati Reds and the Oakland A's from the early 70s and, and other teams that... I'm sure. I, I tried to make sure early in the book, Rachel, that I that I mentioned about ten other teams, and I said, "Listen, I'm going to lay out this the groundwork for why I think they were the best team of all time, but you may think it's one of these teams." And I, and I mentioned a, a handful of teams because it is a subjective question. But I I do feel that in this book, I I lay out the evidence as to why it is the '98 Yankees. Well,
0: and you know, you don't need to twist my arm. I'm I'm right there <laughs> with you. I've, I'm I'm on your page, but. I'm thinking about gosh it's been 25 years since 1998 which still blows my mind that I'm that old but how has baseball changed in the past quarter century I mean even this season we've got the pitching clock so just so so many different changes over the course of 25 years but what are some major changes that have happened in the game in the past 25 years
1: well I think the one word that you hear more in baseball now that you rarely if ever heard 25 years ago is analytics and If it was information, if the word was just information, it it wouldn't be such a, a word that draws the attention of a lot of folks. But teams have become analytically driven, and a lot of decisions are made based on what they think the potential outcome of a situation will be. That wasn't the case in 1998. I know from talking to Joe Torre then and that now how he managed. I know from talking to Aaron Boone, how he is equipped to manage and the information that he goes into a game with far different from what Joe Torre went into a game with video analysis. Mm-hmm. David Cohen has told me that he didn't use any video as a Yankee. He really didn't get into video until he ended up pitching for the Boston Red Sox in 2001. So I think the amount of information that is available for players and honestly, Rachel, even for fans right now is just voluminous. I was at Yankee Stadium last night and You look up at the scoreboard and the second a pitch is thrown, you are told what the velocity of it is and what the horizontal and the vertical movement of it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about that. Like how much information is at your fingertips. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned the changes this year. I I love all the new rules. I love the pitch clock. Mm -hmm. I think it's sped up the game for the better. I don't think it's rushing anybody. It's eliminating clutter. And that's what I like about it.
0: Mm -hmm. It's just weird to think. I mean, you know, of course we didn't have that in 1998, but you know, we live in a world where information is at our fingertips. And I don't even think we had a computer in my house until 1999. So, okay. I mean, you know, it, just, it wasn't always this way, but my last question for you, and this has been more of a delight than you realize, because I'm literally sitting here thinking I'm talking to you right now on zoom, but I'll see you tomorrow night and the night after that. And the night after that, it's just, so I'm, I'm a little bit starstruck right now, but what do you hope readers ultimately take away from the book?
1: I hope that I've taken them behind the scenes, Rachel, and that whatever they knew about the 1998 Yankees, I hope that I have added to that knowledge. I intentionally did not do a lot of digging in on game results and game details until I got to the postseason, until we got until later in this book. Because I wanted to tell people about the Tory and Wells relationship and mm-hmm. how Cohn impacted that. I wanted to tell the story of El Duque and Scott Brocious, Shane Spencer, Strawberry getting colon cancer in September slash October and how that impacted his teammates. George Steinbrenner's presence around the team. Joe Tory being this stoic, soothing leader. It was really my goal to take people inside that team. And 25 years later, have them say things along the lines of, wow, I I never knew that. And I, I know I accomplished that. And I'm not trying to be haughty. I just know from some colleagues of mine who are around in 98, they've read the book and the fact that they learned things that they didn't know that that's meaningful to me.
0: And whether you're a Yankees fan or not listeners, you're going to get something out of this book because it really is a love letter to baseball as well. And to that point, I want to close with this quote from the book, which perhaps sums up baseball better than I ever could. You write baseball is a fulfilling and a deflating sport, a game that can be replete with endless joy or perpetual dread. And all of that is so great. And all of that can happen in one at bat. So thank you for this book, Jack. the book is called the 1998 Yankees, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever. It is out right now. I really appreciate you being here today.
1: Thanks so much, Rachel. I appreciate your passion for the project and your passion for the Yankees.
0: I am so proud to be a Yankees fan and thank you, Jack, for this conversation. Again, the book is The 1998 Yankees, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever. It is out right now. Listeners, in keeping with the sports theme, stay tuned on Tuesday for a conversation about the connection between sports and the American presidency. Yes, there is one, and it is quite fascinating at that. Talk then.